no matter what you hear on this stage tonight, I need you to understand that a revolution is not a poem. It's not held in line by 28 rules or set in between two margins. I never seen a revolution take a bow or have a room full of spectators applauded. It's never schemed on rhymes or presented punctual punchlines. In fact, the only connection the revolution had to configure diction that it was born from the word tired. Of being distressed, overworked, worn out, and frustrated. Like my sisters are frustrated because their deadbeat baby fathers don't bother. All they do is create little boys that play with toys that lack a progressive positive influence who then become big boys playing with rags, hanging out of back pockets, now crying on lonely street corners. So now those tears? You see, those tears become libation for lost years. Absorbed in the concrete, they reveal the footprints of how these sisters now walk these streets because it's no secret that she gives all her secrets to Victoria and Calvin, who's more inclined to disrespect her when the hieroglyphs on Kunta's back should have been the revolution that compelled him to protect us, that he neglects her, buying her soul and selling his own for diamonds and cars, and now Master gets a two-for-one deal. That's why I tell these poets to spit from your soul because this thing is real. But yet what's more important is your actions when they stop the hand clapping Cause you see a revolution is not a poem If it was way before Barack and Michelle was on the scene Our children would have known that intellectual elegance is reachable See, this thing here is teachable But poets gotta walk through the words they spitting through I'm tired of poets that scream black lives matter But the only time I see you sitting in is when you having a mic The only time I seen you dying in is when you have enduring the slam I need you to understand doesn't matter how many degrees you reach for That just become your degree of separation, yo Disconnection from your people If you don't let them know these hymns you spitting from your soul is spiritual You see, egos have permeated this oral tradition Poets have become the equivalent of ministers preaching for skirts and not religion So most of what you see on this stage is revolutionary It is well-written illusional commentary I'm talking about poetic cinematography Poetic minds trapped behind the moving bars of capitalism So what they spitting for is commissary Trapping your mind until they say scream set us free like Senke Cause they still lost in translation Because the truth is most poets wouldn't know if they got slapped in the face with a revolution They just be spitting solutions But words without actions become progressive constipation Like postpartum depression they don't want to handle the real issues but here's real talk while they outline white paper with black ink my black babies are still being outlined in white chalk so if you enter them poetry dens with the mindset of upping your facebook friends or packing your fistful of dividends then the three minutes of this here joint you've completely missed the point the poetry is meant to pierce your soul creating action producing productivity you see spoken word burns in my soul deeply but not at the pace of losing my babies to a bunch of paper revolutionaries Wow. You've just been listening to New Haven's new Poet Laureate, our first ever. Charmant Influence Little. He's got a lot to say, and he knows how to say it. <laughs> Thank you for coming at the Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Charmant Influence Little is making New Haven tick. Welcome, sir, and thanks for coming on the air. Thank you for having me. I really that, appreciate that it. That was quite a piece. It answered every question I was going to ask you on my <laughs> list of questions. What is poetry? What's the reason a poet is to be a revolutionary, is to make things happen? It's action. You've yeah. thought a lot about this. Yes, yes, yes. So, Charmant, you're the new uh, Poet Laureate of the City. Yes, the inaugural Poet Laureate. Yes. And uh, you, your term started the 1st of January? Uh, officially started the 1st of January, yes. Um, the process happened the summer of last year the end of the summer of last year and you year. made a splash on your first day you were delivering a poem at the inauguration for the new mayor and board of alders board of education at cross high school it was a long event most of us were falling asleep and you woke <laughs> us up with a really powerful poem which we're gonna play later about democracy did you get much reaction did that next couple of days where all of a sudden people finding out you're the poet laureate you didn't know or 
No, um, most people don't know um, or didn't know at the time. Uh, but after that event, uh, that particular uh, poem moved through the Internet pretty well. And, you know, even friends in other states and poets in other states have uh, have heard it. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's done well. It's done well. And so you, uh, yeah, do we have a lot of, you mentioned before in the air, there's a poet laureate of New Britain. Yeah, there's a New lot Britain of. It seems like it's a place. I was there recently. It kind of felt like it got bombed out and it's getting rebuilt. And there's this heavy Latino population kind of moving in the culture, right? They always had a Latino population, but it seems right. like now you go downtown, they kind of have the restaurants, they have the businesses. And is, is that what's happening there? Um, well, I think the Poet Laureate is booming now because it's not exclusive anymore. The Poet Laureate has normally been exclusive to academia to you know um what your typical poets what you would think your typical poets look like you know um your robert frosts and things of that nature type type poets um now it's opened up to be uh very diverse and they're entering spoken word artists because for years spoken word artists and spoken word poetry wasn't considered real poetry i wanted to ask you about that because you use that interchangeably in that piece you just did and i've always been a little confused about if there's a difference or it's an overlapping separate genre spoken word and poetry tell you the truth i don't even know what poetry is but i have a sense <laughs> like you see it you hear it you don't it right. doesn't have to rhyme but it can rhyme it has meter and sound has right. internal feeling to it it kind of gives you a sense it's best spoken but it can be read mm -hmm. but what is spoken word versus poetry spoken word is poetry there's there there is no difference it's just like uh anything else there's a different form just like you have sonnets and haikus in Shinru's, you have spoken word. Spoken word is another genre. The thing about spoken word, the reason, one of the reasons why that they didn't accept it is mostly it was born out of urban struggle. It's something, it's a form of poetry that's called free write. Typically, when you tell people to free write, there's not a whole lot of structure to the free write. It's just free thought, uh -huh. writing, writing with the door open. But the difference about spoken word poetry is that what they neglected to understand uh, for years was that Poets, uh, spoken word artists, we use all of the poetic tools that are used to paint pictures with words. We use double entendres, metaphors, similes, and so forth and so on. We use all of these all these tools to paint the pictures that you see. And then it comes out even more because we utilize our body and our emotions so you get to see the full spectrum of what we're talking about. But it's it was founded in like um, the last poets. It was founded in Gil Scott Harrington. in Gil Scott Harrington. Right. Revolution so, will not be televised. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where which, it which kind of was on January 6th, but the revolution <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> it kind of did happen in Brazil. Exactly. exactly. But is it digitized? Though? The, uh, that's interesting to me because also I also wonder sometimes if it matters what poetry is and who gets to say because I think of prose as opposed to poetry. So you talk about stuff like Tom's, you talk about metaphor, you talk about freestyle and freewheel and free, free writing. And, you know, there's riffing, there's free association. There is a thing called prose. We just write sentences. Right. When is that, and when is that not poetry? Does that matter? Um, in my opinion, personally, it, it, really, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it's a form of writing. It's a form of poetry. It's a different form. Because uh, I have a poem where I said, um, this is where I write these poems in prose. Um, and, mm. you know, so I do, in some poems, I do put a separatist between them. But... Nah, it's 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 writing, it's creativity. You know the structure, um, structures are sometimes like we would argue that we would agree that a newspaper article 
I think we'd agree, or an academic paper with lots of citations and big words, that that's not poetry. Right. We would agree that poetry is not a rigid definition. Rhyming is cool. Haiku is cool. Freeform riffing is cool. We'd probably agree that rapping is poetry. Absolutely. So, um, poet has its rigid points based upon the type of poetry you're going to write. If you're going to write a sonnet or you're going to um, write a haiku, well, there are certain lines you have to write to. You have to have a 575 for haiku. Typically, it's about nature. If you're going to write a shinru, it's not about nature, but it still follows the 575. And uh, so poetry has its rigid, rigid angles depending on how you're writing and the structure and what you're writing. And maybe rigidity is something we might use voluntarily to inspire us but maybe we don't have to be bound by it. We talk about what poetry is. Well, that's what I teach my students and stuff um, with, with, with poetry is not to be bound. That's why, that's why free verse is so important because the beginning, the f- basic structure of the poetry is that you spilling whatever emotion you have out. And then once you spill that emotion out, then you go back and you edit and then you think of metaphors and different things of that nature to put inside you to start painting the picture. Um, but it is a complete process of writing, editing, revising, writing, editing, revising, and putting things together. So, um, but the basis of it is 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 just writing with the door open. Writing with the door open. We're talking about that with Shermont Influence Little, New Haven's new poet laureate here on Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM. Let's have people learn a little about your life story. You grew up in Farnham Courts. Yes. Back when they were Farnham Courts. Yes. Before they were they changed it Mill twice. River <laughs> twice. It looks a lot different now. Oh, great! It tip. looks quite nice. It does. It I does. did not think of the old. I didn't live in the old front of course. Every time I'd go there, I did not think it seemed like a very nice place. It seemed very blocky, cinder blocky, a lot of um, dark areas where someone might not. Feel, I, I have friends who didn't feel very safe living there. What What was it like on the inside growing up there? So other people say it was a nice place. We had community. So, I have a poem inside of a. Um, kind of a self-made TED talk that I do and I talk about that. The poem is called Wakanda and I look at Farnham Court, Franklin Street the side that I lived on as Wakanda and it was a protective barrier. The brick walls that that one way, one way out was a protective for me so my mom knew all the neighbors. If we were outside they looked out for us and different things of that nature. Was was there violence and was there things that happened? Yeah, absolutely but um, everybody knew each other so um and when I called it Wakanda was the reason because I was bused from New Haven, Franklin Street to East Haven, Nathan Hale School for elementary. Well, that's Morris Cove. It's not technically East Haven, but it feels like East Haven. Right, right. 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 <laughs> so I, I, I was bused there from Franklin Street to go to school. That's interesting. Why'd they bus you all the way there? Well, you were right was, near Conti. Well, it was, a, well, it was a, a program at that time, which uh. there were a lot of programs like that um, throughout. Um, they were busing more inner city children into these schools to blend in to you know to to give better opportunities to what was that like for you in the beginning it was very hard it was very um it was very emotional uh i was made to feel like i didn't i didn't belong i was made to feel like that i was completely different because we weren't we weren't raised the same we didn't have the same things you know so um it was it was a struggle in the beginning. 
Um, you keep saying in the beginning, I got the sense there was a pivot. There was a pivot because I met a teacher. Um, I would hope she's still living, but I haven't had contact with her in years. Her name was Mrs. Vernon. And Mrs. Vernon was one of the only teachers that weren't scared to drive into Franklin Street Projects and come get me and take me to her house at the beach at East Haven and work with me over the summer. And this lady was almost like another grandmother to me in a way. This was what she time. teach. She taught English. Okay. She so we're getting English. some connection here to right. poetry right. or no? Right. Yes. And in the beginning, um, she, she taught English and you know, this is back when we actually had spelling words. We had to know by the end of the week, you I know, that. On, you had spelling words on the board. She was that teacher. So, um, but she was one of the ones who first starts, uh, sparked the love for, for poetry or even words for that matter. And basically because she showed me a compassion that other people had to show me. It was three teachers in that whole school at that time that showed me compassion. One was named Ms. Vernon. Uh, the other was named Mrs. Turner, who retired a couple years ago. She's an African-American teacher. Um, uh, and I can't remember the other one name, but she was a math teacher. But I can't remember her name. What grades you have, Ms. Vernon? Third. And when did you start writing poetry? I didn't start writing poetry until I was in middle school. Um, and that's when we moved. So my mom, my mom married my, my dad, uh, Joseph Springfield. She married my dad when I was about 12, and we moved up to Windsor, Connecticut. Oh, Windsor. And, I, and at that time, it still was, wasn't very diverse. We were, it wasn't a lot of uh, uh, families of color in that area. Ms. Harris, I'm going to get a little closer to the mic so we can hear oh. you better. Yeah. So um, it wasn't a lot of families uh, of color at that time. And uh, so I went there. in the 90s? Yeah, early, early, because I graduated high school in 95, so you're talking about like 90 90 91 mm -hmm. type thing um so when we went there i started writing poetry but i couldn't write poetry in the open because that's this is still late 80s going into the 90s you couldn't write poetry and and, and and be around and be around people they called you all those names they called you gay they called you punk you called you soft it wasn't something that you could do poetry you couldn't be like yeah i'm a poet yeah i was a football player I was a basketball player. You would never know I was a poet. So this is the point where my mom married my dad, and he was a, he was a mason, uh, a war hero. Uh, he was everything to me. And uh, he's the one who stopped me from going outside during the week, and he made me study. He was really big on education, reading the dictionary, having words like i literally monday through thursday i didn't go outside i wasn't allowed to go outside until friday friday and saturday sunday i was back in the house again getting ready for school and stuff like that so he was the one unless i had football practice um but he was the one who started uh really got me into knowing words and then writing but you couldn't just come out and be a poet <laughs> <laughs> in the early 90s you were considered so it was soft. a secret or something well, yeah, I mean, during the day, I would hang out with it during the day or the weekends. I would hang out with my friends and stuff like that or around school. I would talk about anything and everything else, but I would never bring up about being a poet because the conversations, first of all, to talk about school was, you know, it wasn't a cool thing to do anyway. Then to talk, talk about poetry on top of it. What were you writing at home? At home, it was more like uh, black history stuff that my dad would would teach me like i said he was very very in tune with himself and and him being black and the black he was, he was from chicago um so he was very much into 
uh, everything, uh, everything black. And so I started writing about things like that and learning about uh, slavery and learning about history and learning about uh, different things of that nature. So I started writing about those things. And, but they never saw the light of day because it just, just wasn't a cool thing to do. Then I fast forward to graduation. I stopped writing poetry and my younger brother went to college. He went to Western. So me being the big brother, I took and was going up there to check on him, make sure he was doing what he was supposed to do. I'm checking in his, his, his drawers and make sure there's no drugs or paraphernalia, make sure he's staying in line. And I come across a book and I find out he's writing poetry too. And he's hiding. And so um, then the floodgates opened and I started writing poetry. I, my first open mic I went to was here in New Haven. Uh, when we moved back from was when we moved back here to New Haven, my first open mic I went to was uh, uh, Sister Aisatu, who used to run an open mic out of the New Haven Public Library down, downtown. How old were you when you went? Oh, um, when I went to that open mic, I was probably... About nineteen twenty. Were you in college? Or did you go to college? Uh, I didn't go to college at first. Um, my dad, uh, my dad was a manager for Popeye's Chicken in New Haven. Uh, a lot of people in the city knew who he was. He was the, the dark skin manager, really sarcastic uh, at Popeye's Chicken for years, most of the nineties. Um, he wanted me to go to college. He stayed angry with me for years until I graduated nursing school. Um, but no, I didn't go to college at first. I moved out of my mom's house at the age of 17. Where'd you live? Uh, my first apartment was downtown across the street from the telephone company. And now it's considered, uh, like a high ritzy loft. Like it's expensive. When I went there, it's like $800 a month. <laughs> so, um, it it was, uh, it was me and who was now my wife, Kilsha. So, uh, yeah, I moved out of my mom's house when I was 17 and I have, knock on wood i've been blessed to not have to go back home unless and you became a nurse i became a nurse year i didn't become a nurse until i was in my 30s oh what'd um, you do until then um <laughs> i didn't part of the environment i i joined into part of the environment and didn't do uh all the things that my my parents dreamed of me doing you know i dibbled and dabbled in this that and the third hustling in the street and different stuff like that not because i had to my dad provided a job for me and everything like that more or less did you work at popeyes i i did both yeah yeah i i, I worked at popeyes at night and and hustled during the day and then after i left i've held probably every fast food job you can name i probably i've, I've worked at wendy's i've worked at uh popeyes i was the youngest general manager for kentucky fried chicken i ran two kentucky fried chickens uh I was I had to be at about 23, 24, and I ran two Kentucky Fried. The one on Exit Eight was old was owned by an older Caucasian gentleman and his son, and then he the, he owned that one and the one in on East Haven over by McDonald's um, in the bowling alley. He owned both of those, and I was a general manager of both of those uh, at a very young age. And then I left that, and uh, what else I do? I've done security. I've done so many different things. What was the pivot? What made you go into nursing in this? great career i took um i used to work for a place called children's center of hamden and then i left there and i went to yale psychiatric hospital um and i was a pca milieu counselor and one of my friends who's moved away her name was tahara bush she went to nursing school and she was like and people had always been telling me shema you have the great temperament you could be a nurse that for so so when she went to go uh 
go to nursing school. She was like, Shema, you could do this. Like, if I could do it. So I said, the heck. I went ahead and, and, and I went. And, uh, and you've been a nurse ever since? Been a nurse. It's been 16 years now. 16 years. And you also got involved pretty early on looking at the New Haven Independent. You were doing open mic, writing your poetry. Mm-hmm. And you and, and you also um, been involved in political activism with your union, right? Your union nurse? I guess no union at Yale. Well, there wasn't a union at Yale. So what happened around two. 2005, 2006, they started, I was at Yale, they started talking about having a union for the workers because the only workers that were unionized for Yale was the kitchen. They were the only ones unionized besides, you know, which they say the university and the the hospital are two separate entities. We're not going to go into that story. But for the hospital, the only people who were unionized were the kitchen staff. Um, So 1199... Uh, joined up with some workers, and at that time, I'm a poet, and I'm out here uh, doing my thing, want to be part of the struggle for the city, so I took up arms with 1199, and everywhere they were, I wanted to be in the front in, in front center to be a part of it, and and they utilized that. Um, and then they sent me all the way to Washington, D.C. to talk really? about it. Yeah, they sent, they, they took, we took a flight out to Washington, D.C. to talk about the Free Labor Choice Act and things of that nature. Um at that time and then we came back and then uh, all the disparagement happened all of the threatening and all the things we knew what was going to happen happened and they um it ended up there was a 15 page affidavit that was written about all the things that are happening i had to i remember when they they were breaking their own rules of what they're supposed to do then they said okay we'll agree to fair rules and not break exactly. the law with the nlrb about how we let you organize exactly but they got that agreement i remember that big agreement the big celebration but then they still the, the they still drive came up short why do you think that was the drive came up short because they had did so much damage in scaring people they couldn't see <coughs> not having their job or the other part was the people at that time were so young. If you give a young kid 17, 18 years old, he's working 40 hours a week and he's making 800 to $1,000 and he's living with mom. That's everything. Like, I don't need nothing else. I'm good. They couldn't see that uh, uh, someone in environmental services from university that's working side by side with you in some capacity is making 5 to $10 more to you per hour. They didn't. They couldn't see that. So... The disparagement and the threatening that went along with the uh, with the young people and stuff like that, that that really didn't buy in. That's the reason why it didn't fail. Then they gave us the the award. Uh, the, the probate just gave us the award of three point five million to all the workers. Well, Yale took that and they was like, OK, fine, we'll give it to you. But then they gave it to us that um, that winter around christmas when everyone worked all their overtime so they taxed us we got taxed tremendously um with that check on top of our work check like people got taxed horribly um because of that and it was just we're talking about we're talking shamat influence little our new poet laureate who's been an activist in the trenches and a nurse in new haven now we're going late into a second decade you stayed with activism you stayed with nursing you stayed with poetry yes. are they all together from my studies and my knowledge, most of the things in the world don't really happen unless there is a writer somewhere in the trenches that's putting the word out and talking about it. Whether it's writing in poetry as poets, whether it's writing in song, whether it's written, even visual art. Uh, and the arts have always been a part of 
the revolution. They've always had to be. And that's where the revolution is captured and, and documented, you know. Um, and it almost doesn't even matter what country you're in. It's America. It could be anywhere. You know, there's, there's, there's German writers and, and Russian writers and, you know, things of that nature that and people from that for those eras that wrote poetry about those times, just like we have American uh, spoken word artists like uh, my mentor in Goma. If you read his book, the majority of Ngoma's book talks about his time in Vietnam mm-hmm. and you get a very clear picture of what that was like for the men who fought in Vietnam, you know? So, um, yeah, art, 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 poetry has always been a part of revolution. So what, um, what does it mean to you, Poet Laureate? Do you get paid for that? Do you get any kind of responsibilities, um, expectations? First and foremost, um, it's an honor to be Poet Laureate for me. Um, one reason is because it's funny because growing up, even though I had great parents, no one ever told me that I would come from Franklin Street Projects in New Haven and I would be known worldwide and also be a Poet Laureate for the city. Um, so it, I take great pride because I love this city. New Haven is is my city. This is this is home. I'm with you on that. Um, I love this city, regardless of what anyone says. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a prideful thing for me. I take it very very seriously to be poet laureate. Uh, do I get paid for it? Yes. There's a stipend per year. Um, what I mean is, are you supposed to go to schools a certain amount of time? Do you just get invited places as the poet well, laureate? So so that's that's the thing that we were talking about earlier about the shift that happened so now that um typically you would you would think that a poet laureate would come from Yale this is great established writer and so forth and so on you know um but no you didn't have to go to school for it what happened the process was um it was picked up in a lady by the name of uh Miss Ife Miss Ife right she 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 took a look and she was like new haven doesn't have a poet laureate this town has one this town has one but we don't have one and so she picked up arms with it and took it to uh adrian who is part of new haven or the director of new haven uh new haven tourism um cultural affairs so she took it to her and they was like okay go with it and she put it together and she put it out there and said that everybody uh everybody who want anybody who wants to be one you have to do a submission you have to do give us one of your top pieces that you like, and then you have to write a poem about New Haven. And so I did that. And I got an email. I have friends and everything that was like, man, you've been to Poet Laureate. You've been you've been in this city doing this. Like you, I'm like, man, I ain't going to win this thing. And I got a, I, I got an email saying, uh, actually, it wasn't even an email. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I got hit up on Instagram in my inbox. It was like, you need to be here at this time uh, for you're one of the finalists. And so I was like, okay. So um, during Miss Ife's culturally lit event that happened at the Dixwell Q House this past summer, she combined all that and uh, made the announcement at that point. And you won. Yes. And then you got invited to the inauguration. Yes. And let's play people the uh, poem that we all like so much. Okay. Called Democracy by New Haven Poet Laureate. Oops, got to put that one on hold. My New Haven poet, Laureus Shermont, Influence Little. How'd you get the name Influence? <laughs> That's a story in itself. I was, I'll tell you right after. <laughs> All right, let's first hear the poem. Your beauty distorting your makeup, trying to prevent your people from finding the happiness in the pursuit of you. 
sometimes can't find the consistencies within the Constitution, their construct wants to erase our contribution and label us as cons in the name of you. They say slavery is abolished except for the convicted felon. Most of us have never seen a gavel swing. We are not dummies. Our bodies should never be used to crash test bullets in the name of justice, democracy, equality. I've seen this nation cry like the hardest of rainfalls. But the days are only brighter as we see the rainbow complete the melting pot. So we always should be joyful, jubilant, and gay. That's the only way to transition as a people. As the birth child of the Constitution, you know that gender equality is promoting welfare for all people. Democracy, your name is more than just a free vote. It's the freedom to have a choice, for a woman to choose when a child should exit the sovereign state of her body. That should not be his bipartisan argument. The only voice that actually matters is hers, democracy. <laughs> democracy. Life. Some of us are not as privileged as others. But our blood and bones are still sewn in the fabric of the American flag. Some of Uncle Sam's grandchildren want to filibust us back to the back of the bus, putting us in pigeonholes as if we didn't fight in those same holes in World War I, II, and Vietnam. Democracy, we love you, please. If you're not careful, you're going to remarry a tyrant that will change your name to dictatorship. Please, democracy, please remember. You are the apex of the American dream, a future without bounds. People break your borders just to see what you look like, knowing if your drive matches your dream, there's no distance that you can't travel, especially when you ride with freedom, speech, equality, life, justice, in the name of you, democracy, in the name of being an American. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. Dude, we felt that it. you felt I was watching you there, and you really were feeling it. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't tell whether or not you're nervous, but I could tell you were feeling it. You felt like this was a moment you were going to pour it out. Um, what was going through your mind? Nervousness. Um, because when you're in rooms like that so often, you are not allowed to be your authentic self and put your authentic views. The views tend to have to align with where you where you are. And like I said, once I called my friend, uh, my mentor in Goma, uh, it became more clear that, no, your job is to speak the truth as a poet. And so I said, okay. Um, my job at that point was to try to make it as palatable as possible, as creative as possible to keep the integrity of poetry in it as well as clear the message and not not be blatant. It still have a creativity. I, I was wondering about that. So politics, political artists, whether it's politics, music, poetry, politics could be an inspiration if you see politics in a spiritual way. Politics isn't just about a person getting power but having values of who we are as people and what we are as a community, what we are as a human race mm -hmm. and that politics can also be limiting right it can be ideologically limiting where artistry you know soviet realism often gets a really bad hit i think some of it was okay but a lot of it was like very constrained right. you're not free to speak what your authentic self is you not have the hue to a line how do you navigate that line between a poet who is primarily or largely motive seems to me inspired by politics and seeing it as a revolutionary tool 
and still being a poet and artist unrestrained by the boundaries of any one ideology. Hmm. Or by the feeling that this poem has to make something happen, or is it just that you have to document and that itself is valuable? Well, okay, so there's two poems I had to write for the city. One poem was for they didn't get as much um, because it was it was captured during the Christmas tree lighting. Channel 8 News has the copy of it, but they didn't release it. That poem, <laughs> so and I'm tying them both together. That poem talked more, more about um, people of color being hurt around the world, specifically talking about uh, the Palestine uh, situation, what's going on in Palestine. And uh, one of the lines in that is that, as you celebrate the baby in the major, don't forget about all the babies that are dying in Palestine major hospitals. So um, there's always a political, most of the time there's always a political undertone in the poetry, unless you're writing about your family or you're writing about your loved one. It's it, it intersects. I mean, you were talking about sisters in your first poem you read. Mm -hmm. And that was very personal. It was very raw about mm -hmm. what happens to their babies when they grow up. Mm -hmm. And, and, Yet it was also deeply political because you were talking about forces in society that mm -hmm. lead to the individual pain, yeah. challenge. Yeah, well, like I said, most definitely. I mean, politics and in social injustices, which are dictated by policies and government, are some of the strongest foundations of spoken word artists and what we go through because they're <laughs> we can take our pick. <laughs> social injustices and things that are happening to us um and in and in some cases there we have poems that are a direct cry to ourselves to be better in situations you know i'm not that poet to where everything is someone else's fault initially yes but at there comes a point where you cognitively understand what's happening and once my father always told me it's a fool to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Right. So when there's political things that happen and you learn about it, you need to move accordingly and move differently. Um, especially as people of color. So I don't like just blaming everything on the politics. All those, it's a great, great barrier, but, I also hold us accountable for the things that we can that we can change. Gregory Graham, thank you for listening. Gregory writes in the rigorous quest, crafting line after line, coruscations, shine, adumbrations, adumbrations. I said that right. Designed an endless expression of attempts at comprehension, restless, spreading the stars and nighttime wanderers, all all inspire. Thank you, Gregory, for your contribution, and thank, thank you for you. listening. You're listening to Dateline New Haven. We have New Haven's poet laureate. Charmant influence little where did the influence come from <clears throat> uh, the influence came from it's funny because like I said um, I had I had some some stuff that I was doing when I was younger and they used to call me B.I. they used to call me bad influence so when I started poetry <laughs> <laughs> what was that when you were on the street yeah yeah when like I was night doing nighttime at Kendall Fried Chicken daytime yeah, doing the street yeah so I had uh, when I when I started doing this poetry thing and I decided you know to change the little things that I were doing because I had a in my opinion I had a praying grandmother and a praying mother is the reason why I never did any jail time or I never got caught up and I had mm. family that looked out for me and stuff like that but when I decided to get serious about my writing and changing I went to an open mic uh, that was uh, Sandra Soul Food had on Whitney Avenue I remember when they had that place right and so they had that they had that place then and excuse me i'm sorry no worries uh they had that place then and uh and it was 
a gentleman by the name of Breon Baines was down here at the time. He was the top poet in the area that got all the poets together. And I went up there and I'm going to, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be this, this oxymoron. I'm going to be bad influence and spit all this, this positivity and stuff. So I got up there and I did my little poem and a friend of mine, uh, you may have heard of him. He's, he's from New Haven. Uh, they call him Jason. And Jay looked at me and he goes, yo, why you call yourself bad influence spitting all that good stuff? And I'm like, cause man, I tried to explain to him the whole thing. He was like, nah, 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 man, nah, man. Your name influence. And it stuck. 20 years later, it stuck. <laughs> and, you know, so um, now it's more so because um, things have, things over the years have gotten so big. I use my full name now, not just influence. Um, for business purposes, I may influence kind of like my middle name now. So it's Shermont Influence Little. And you also, we talk about politics, another form of politics, which is organizing and community. Mm-hmm. You, um, you've you done arts activism in the Universal Arts Movement, 2007. That was a summer camp. Mm-hmm. We found that. And then Influence of Life. Tell me what that is. The Underground Invincible Slam, Poets, Realm, Connecticut. What are those? Okay. So, all right. So these are these are things that I do. So Influence and Life was birthed out combining my nursing and my poetry together. Influence Influence A Life uh, LLC is an umbrella company. The first part of that is workshops and curriculums. I teach social and emotional learning, uh, coping skills and things of that net using the vehicle of poetry to help young people and um, some older adults navigate social emotional learning. Then I also have a clothing line that's also entitled Influence A Life. That uh, it started off with T-shirts and hoodies, and it's um, right now I'm in the process of doing full sweatsuits and things of that nature. Um, then you have Influence of Life Entertainment, where I do the thousand-dollar Invitational Poetry Slam that I do at Lennon's on State Street in Hamden, uh, and I put a thousand dollars of my own money up, and I call my poetry friends from around the country to come down and battle oh, for Poetry Slam. Poetry battle. Yeah. Poetry yeah. Slam. So, and it gets really intense. And I also do a venue called Lyrical Haven. Lyrical Haven is a poetry and R&B fusion with a live band and uh, DJ. I held it last year at the Cambria Hotel, and it was a big, 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 big success. How do people find out about the next one? Um, they can follow me on Instagram. That's a big place. Um uh, there's two pages. If you put it influence a life, you both pages should come up. One with, is a picture of me, and the other one is my logo. Follow both pages. Cause that's on, Instagram. That's on Instagram. So the best way to find all the stuff with you is Instagram. Yeah, that's the that's where all the flyers are going to be. Um, I do have my my website that you can message me and stuff like that. It's influencealife.com. All right, and uh, you've been doing a lot of influencing, a lot of poetry. Where are you taking it next? For this city, um, we're uh, we're in the process of creating an open mic because there's not a lot of open mics in this city for local artists. So right now we're creating open mic that we are potentially, uh, not potentially, they said I can do it. We're going to have it in City Hall. It's going to be a bi-monthly event. It's going to be called Elm City Flow. When is that starting? It's supposed to start in March. So we're, 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 we're trying to tie in the, um, the dates and stuff right now. And why do you want it in City Hall? City Hall needs to be a part of the city. <laughs> <laughs> that, is that going to make it happen? It's not happening right now. <laughs> so, um, I mean, at least for the art perspective of it, you know, that um, that's a space that 
it's not being used so much and it and it's a space that can be used for it's people. interesting space yeah it, it can be used for people to come and enjoy have a good time get filled and release and then go home you know um you've never heard of a poetry venue having breakouts and fights and gunfights and you never hear that you look like a complete idiot coming to a poetry venue with a bunch of intellectual people talking like you want to be a tough guy it sounds stupid <laughs> so <laughs> well Sherman, i really really enjoy talking to you and i salute you wish you all luck thank you for coming on dateline new haven would you like to close out with another poem and i'll put some music on the background yes i'll um i'll do the piece that's the most popular which is uh a piece about my daughters uh, Cause they're they're everything to me. All right. Shamrat influenced little. When you have a daughter, braiding hair isn't just braiding hair; it's a process. Wash, keep her thoughts clean to help break up the danger for the world. Condition, to recondition her roots so she realizes she's not a black, broken, brittle piece of herself. Blow dry. Medium to low heat. Protect the history of her roots. Seal in your lessons. You see, this is a process because these lion relaxers will rip her from her culture like native tongues are ripped from her mouth. You see, when men have daughters, we hear, you're going to reap what you sow. I mean, what goes around comes around. So I part their hair straight to continue the path of angels sleeping in their nappy-headed roots. Because equality can't be boxed in a box braid. So I grease up with black gospel verses putting the Holy Ghost in my combs. Because ethnic roots are blessed with trials and tribulations. Like when white counselors told my daughter that she can only choose in community colleges. But universities showed her the money with full-fledged educational scholarships. Braiding hair isn't just braiding hair. Style it with a spiritual connection. A beautiful three-strand trinity. Father, daughter, holy bond. Blessed be the shotgun for the prom date. This ain't just braiding hair. So I braid underhanded to hide my fears of black girl magic. Because black girls are vanishing just like black boys. They go missing like barrettes. When a Tamir Rice gets shot, everyone forgets about Rakia Boyd, Ayanna Jones, Sandra Bland. These women have fathers like me that will go into Walmart to grab period pillows, rags, sanitary napkins, tampons, and dare somebody to say something. They can catch these shea buttered anointed hands. See, this is more than just braids and ponytails. These are open conversations like daddy. Why can't I date him? Didn't you sell drugs? Like daddy, I think she wants to take me to the dance. This is more than just braiding hair. This is therapy. This is baby. I put the drugs away a long time ago because you're the only potent substance I wanted to handle. It's baby. You can choose whoever you want. Just remember that daddy loves you because baby girl, your path won't be easy. You can't be tenderheaded. You got to be able to handle any style because this world will twist, lock you up, ban you into knots because they dread your existence. This is not about braiding your hair it's about quality time ending daddy issues being your shoulder <laughs> but you not needing it unapologetically independent is showing unconditional love when this world gives you conditions so even when my hands cramp i will wash dry part grease twist and braid my life around yours because it's always been about loving you and never been about braiding your hair wow i can see why that's when they ask you to say a lot that was beautiful that's beautiful and powerful. Shamart Influence Little, thank you for coming on Dateline Haven. Thanks to Harry Dros, number one station manager in the multiverse. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long. WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>